Before we begin, I would like to ask the Lord's assistance. It is um, it's one thing to stand here and speak, but it's also another thing to sit there and listen. And so let's ask the Lord's help on both accounts. Amen. Heavenly Father, we now ask that you would loose my tongue and that you would allow me to speak your word only. We pray that Christ might be glorified and lifted up. Oh, be with your people. You have told us that you walk among your churches, churches, and we pray, Lord, that now, Holy Spirit, be among us. May our ears be opened and may our hearts be rendered. And we pray, Lord, that these things might, might allow us to enjoy the presence of your person, the beauty of the gospel. Let us not be afraid of the things that are to happen to us, but let us rejoice in the grace that you have provided. We pray these things in our Lord's name. Amen. Amen. It's good to see everyone here. It's a, it's a pleasant thing. We're not a very large congregation, and sometimes when we're singing, we have, uh, we're a little bit timid, you know, but remember, if we're going to sing that, uh, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, you should use your own. You should use your own. Don't be afraid to hear yourself. It's a good thing to hear the praises of God. Amen. Uh, the Lord has uh, an ear to hear the heart. So just please remember that. The doctrines we'll be looking at today will concern the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now even the word itself, apocalypse, brings to mind to many people like this is uh, going to be a horrific time. And uh, these four horsemen they do bring some of these horrific things to mind. I would like to um, read these verses once again, verses 1 through 8. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud, with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering unto conquer. And notice as we read this, one seal after another for the first four seals. And he opened the second seal, and I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. He opened uh, the third seal. I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of, pair of scales in his hands. And I heard what was seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And he was given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and with a wild peace of the earth. This particular doctrine that I want to present to you today based upon these, uh, these verses is that the Christian will endure testing and trial and persecutions. It's commonly taught these days that the, that the Christian is going to be suddenly snatched out of this world and they will escape persecutions. There is great tribulation, but the scriptures do not actually teach that. It is by the grace of God that we will enable to endure unto the end 
That's what's written in the churches to the seven churches in Asia, that they should endure unto the end, that they would overcome, and that they would have the ability to conquer. We must rest upon the Word of God, the Gospel, in its promises and teaching. And we need to rest upon the providential care of God, even if it brings war and famine and death. Remember what I said in my prayer. If we sing it in a hymn, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And it is a very true thing. We'll have a few seconds to review what we've covered so far. As you recall, the book of the Revelation brings seven apocalyptic visions. And we've already covered one, and we're in the midst of the second one. The first one covers, uh, in chapters 1 through uh, to the end of chapter 3, tells us of a time from the Apostle John all the way to the end to the judgment. And you may say, well, I didn't remember that. Well, it was the time when Christ is walking among his churches. He has individualized letters to the churches. And every one of these say, I walk among you, and this is what I am pleased with. This is what I am not pleased with. And he does so that they might hear what the Spirit says to the churches, that they may overcome, that they may endure unto the end. And I want you to understand that he walks among us here. We are among those churches. He wants us to endure unto the end. This vision goes from the time of John all the way up to the judgment because he walks among his people. He walks among his churches. And then we start over again. He, the vision says, come up. Come up and see what we can see from chapters 4 all the way to the first verse of chapter 8. And from there we see the God is on his throne. We see the throne described. We see God being worshipped by four fantastically beautiful creatures and 24 elders sitting on their own thrones. We see that there is the Lamb of God. He's introduced as the line of the tribe of David. And then when John looks to see, he sees the Lamb of God as though he had been slain from the foundation of the world. And we also see how he stands between the living creatures and the throne himself. Now these living creatures are very similar to the ones described by Isaiah and by Ezekiel and by even Zechariah. And these living creatures, one of them stood outside the Garden of Eden to guard the tree of life. Once man fell into sin, once he declared his independence from God, he declared war on God and one creature stood with a flaming sword to guard their way against them eating the tree of life. But here we have Christ standing between these creatures and the Father himself. He is not forbidden. He is actually the tree of life himself. And he takes the scroll that is in the hand of the Father, and he has proven that he is worthy because he shed his own blood, and it is authenticated that he has the authority by him breaking the seals. And so we see that he breaks these seals one by one, and we witness the events that he is authorized to do, and they commence to happen. He is the sovereign Lord of all. He has been authenticated by the fact that he is worthy, and he is authorized by the fact that when he breaks the seals, these commence to happen. We consider the first four seals that we're about to look at, called the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. They are kind of famous in the world. Books have been written about them. Sometimes they even describe 
when, when bad events happen, they uh, even equate that to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But today we want to see what they mean in their context and what the truth is about. Now, to begin with, I think it would be a good idea for me to not directly go to the verses, but instead go to a chapter in the book of Zechariah. It would be a good idea to compare what we read in Zechariah chapter 6 to what we read in the Revelation chapter 6. In Zechariah, that entire chapter has a fantastic vision. And there are approximately six visions in the book of Zechariah. The, the book itself is filled with apocalyptic visions. Now the ones that we're about to look at has to do with chariots coming out from between mountains of bronze. Four chariots, and they happen to have the same colors that we are going to be looking at in the book of Revelation chapter 6. And so this particular chapter can be divided in two parts. The first part has to do with four chariots. And I want you to remember this. These chariots have been sent forth to do the will of God. The second part of this chapter is going to be the description of what a man that is called the branch, who is a figure of the Lord Jesus Christ, and how he shall build the temple of God. So two things. We're not read the second part of the chapter, but we will read the first part. Two things. Four chariots that do the will of God. And then I want you to remember, after we read this, note, take note that these chariots that do the will of God, they will bring rest to the Spirit of God. They bring rest to the Spirit of God. And then the last half speaks of how the Lord will build his temple. So Zechariah chapter 6, let me read the first eight verses. Again I lifted up my eyes and saw, Behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. And the first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, which is very comparable to a kind of a pale green, kind of like what you would imagine if you were to think of death. And notice the next phrase, all of them strong. Then answered I, then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? So we're just about to get the answer. What are these, my Lord? And the angel said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven. So here we have mighty chariots of God. And I want you to think about that. They're described by the phrases they are very strong, very strong. And these are going out to the four winds all over the earth after presenting themselves before the Lord of the earth. In other words, they give account to God. They go before God and they say, what would you have me do? And God says, I will have you do this. Go and do it. The chariot with the black horses go toward the north country. The white ones go, uh, go after them and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. And they patrolled the earth. And he cried to me, behold, those that go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. So let me just speak a few words to this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but I would like to give you some observations. At a time when this was written, the art of war had had really progressed a long way. Not like it is today, but I'll tell you what, 
When it comes to being a fearful army, all you have to do is get mighty horses. Remember what the song of Moses was about when they were chased across the Red Sea? Oh, the Lord conquered them. The horse and his rider fell into the sea. There's nothing more fearful if you're a foot soldier than a man on a horse coming after you. He can run you down. This was the Apache helicopter of the time, let me tell you. You put a team of these horses in front of a chariot, and you have a man driving a chariot towards you, and you also have a man with a bow in it. My goodness, this, this is high tech. This is a fearful thing. These, as described by here, are strong. You cannot beat this. I can remember reading about Genghis Khan when he went about Mongolia and he conquered the known world around him. And you know what he had? Horsemen. Horsemen that developed a skill that he could sit on a running horse full speed using a bow. Man, that was high tech. People could not stand before his armies. He would go to villages, completely decimate them, run around this village, and they couldn't catch them. They couldn't defeat them. They would just bring a village to its knees. These were mighty men. You know, I couldn't do it, but I'll tell you what. These were strong images of warfare. You cannot go up against chariots and horses. And this image tells us that God has his way in the world. He has his chariots that come before him and they say, what would you want us to do now? And he says, go do this, go do that. And you know what they say? Oh, I'm anxious. I'm anxious. Please let me go now. I want to go and do God's will. I have the power. I have the authority. And I will go and do whatever brings rest to your soul. That is it. And when they go and do God's will, God says, I have brought rest to my soul. It has brought rest to him. Reminds me of the time when God created all heaven and earth. And he did a very good job. And he rested. It is a calmness and a peace that only the Almighty can tell us about. But we can rest in the fact that God rested. We know that when he sends out these mighty, strong horses and chariots, that they will perform his will. The second part of that chapter talks about the branch, the branch that will build his church. So here we have God sending his mighty forces out, doing his will, and his branch builds his temple. This is not that much different than what we have here in the book of Revelation. So let's go to the observations that we can make in the book of Revelation chapters uh, 6, 1 through 8. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of these seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come! Well, like all the other apocalyptic visions, we can see that this is a vision. It says, I watched. This is something that he has to see, something that must be interpreted. John saw Christ as the Lamb of God open one of the seven seals. And of course, when he heard that, the voice of one of the living creatures says from the throne, you know, uh, come, a very simple command, come. No more explanation was given. Now I ask you, uh, just, you know, who were these creatures? where they're the ones described in the very first vision. Remember, one was like a lion, one was like an ox, one had the face of a man, one had the flight of an eagle. They're seraphims. They had six wings. They always worshipped God by saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And around them they had the four and twenty elders. And then they say one word with a 
emphasis with an exclamation point in the scriptures, come. That's all they say. And then the rest is to be witnessed, is to be seen. Now I ask you a simple question. Just who was this creature speaking to? Was he speaking to John? Well, what happened? When he says, come, the horsemen come. And so I believe that this creature is speaking to the horsemen. And so in verse number two, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So, the first thing we see here is that we have a horse. That's what its description. It doesn't even talk about the rider yet. We have a horse. The horse is white. But on top of this horse, we have a horseman. Now, this horseman does not have a name. He is unnamed, but he is described. He has a bow, he has a crown, and he is given authority to conquer and to conquer. Now, this is where the commentators all go in different directions. I'm telling you, every commentator you read will say, I wonder who this guy is. Some is going to say, well, this is just general warfare. God is going to grant that human beings will try to conquer each other. They'll go out and have battles. Another commentator will say, well, this is obviously uh, the Antichrist. He's meant to look like the Lord. He's on a white horse. That's what the Lord would ride. But this is obviously bringing havoc upon the earth and horrific things will happen. So why would the Lord be doing this? Others say that this is the gospel with the Lord coming out and he has dispensed his disciples. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And they conquer the hearts of men with the gospel. Others say that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at chapter 19, verse 11, let me read this to you. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and one sitting on it called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And so it very is possible that it is the Lord Jesus Christ. But I would say this. It doesn't say who this is. And so I ask you this question. Does the Lord give us information that is useless? Sometimes the Lord will give us vague information. We cannot go beyond what the Lord has given us. But we are allowed to say, well, I think it's this. But I have to tell you I, what I think. This is where I draw the line of what the Word of God says and what other people think. I don't just pick the man that I like the most and say, I agree with him, so you agree with him too. No, we look at this and we say what it says. A man came on a white horse and he was given a bow and he went to conquer and to conquer. Now, I'll give you my opinion. I believe that this particular horse holds a man who is conquering the hearts of men. I believe it is the Lord Jesus Christ. But I don't know the answer to the question. I simply do not know. But that is my opinion. I know this, that this person on the horse has the authority to do what he's doing. And it's very strong. Very strong. Verse number three. When he opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, Come. Notice the emphasis here. These things are happening because God has the authority to do so. He breaks the seal. It's been authenticated. He has the authority and it commences. It happens. <clears throat> this means there is sovereign power 
that is being done to make sure these things will happen. These are not possibilities. These are things that will happen or has happened or is happening and will happen more. When the Lamb opens his second seal, he hears something. The creature says, come. The seals tell us this. Now, this is a very hands-on way of us seeing God having sovereignty over all creation. We may say, it's a, God works in mysterious ways, and we do not see how God can control all things, and that is still very true. But the vision gives us a hands-on way of the way God is doing it. He sends out like chariots, like horsemen, and they are able to perform their jobs. Verse number four. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So I want you to notice that this particular horseman also is unnamed. But he is also described in what he will do and what he can do and what is provided to him. It is permitted. Notice that he is not saying that the one on this horse is like an angel that does God's will because he wishes to do God's will. No, it says that he has been permitted to do what he's about to do. It could be evil men. It could be demons. It could be anyone. But we do know this that the man or the creature, whoever is on that horse, he has been given a great sword, and he has the power to bring war upon the earth. And it's strong. It's very strong. He's permitted to take peace from the earth. Now, the effects of this writer, let me ask you this. Were the ones that, the ones that have brought war upon this world, from the beginning to now to the future, those that bring war upon us, are they forced to do so? Do they do it involuntary or under a compulsion? Are they obligated to do it? Well, sometimes you would say, well, I know someone that was drafted. You know, they didn't want to go. But I do know this, that there are people that say, we will have war and it will happen. Is it against the nature of man to be at war? No, it is not. Man is at war even with himself, let alone God. So this warfare, who is it between? Well, I would say primarily from this perspective, it is between the world and God's people. Now, it doesn't always have to be that way, because you see, sometimes God, the world, can war with itself, and Christians are right in the middle of it. Did this warfare, does it have conflicts between all the factions of the earth? Well, we don't know, but we do know this. Whoever's on that red horse has the power to bring warfare, to take peace from the earth. And they have the authority to do so because that's what's being done. Now, it's given to him a great sword. And I'm going to tell you right now, I have no idea what that means. But I do know this, that the cleverness of men, the ability of men to be inventive, to create things, such as penicillin, such as plows, iron plows, any type of technology. But it takes a man of war to take whatever men can invent and make a better sword. That's what's done from day one. We have the, the if you go to any library, any history book, most of the history will be a history of warfare. 
It'll be a history of how one people conquers another people and how one had better warfare than the other. Even the, from the very beginning, from the sons of Adam, when Cain picked up a rock and then his grandsons built iron cities and used swords, it all went back to the great sword that's been given to them. And are these not horrific events? Is it Satan on this horse? I can't tell you who is on this horse, but I do know this. They have been given authority to do so. They have been given permission to do so. And so, the horseman is calm, is said to come. Now let's go to verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. Again we see the lamb opens the third seal, giving us the idea that this is not coming against God's will. It isn't. It's the sovereign hand of God controlling everything. God, John hears what the living creature says, and he looks, and he has something that he adds to his um, uh, commentary. He says, Behold. The other ones, he doesn't say that. He says, Behold. Lo, look at this. It is a black horse. Again, this rider is unnamed, but he has a complete description of what he's doing. Behold, there is a pair of scales. Uh, a pair of scales in his hands. And this is symbolic, of course. The rider of the white horse had a bow. The rider of the red horse had a great sword. But the rider of the black horse has a pair of scales. Now, out of nowhere, we hear a voice. Let's read this in verse number 6. And I heard what seems to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not harm the oil and wine. Now, this is a unique way of saying that there seems to be a voice from the four living creatures that we can say this. There is additional directions and constraints given to this rider on the black horse. He may bring scales, and he may bring famine, and he may bring pestilence and death by these means, but he has constraints. There is a hedge set about this. God has said, you will do this, but you cannot go beyond this point. There is a, uh, in, in looking at this, we can see that wheat is probably uh, the better of the food compared to barley. And for a denarius, for a quart of wheat, for one denarius, it has been equated to one, man's, one day's wage of a man. And so we can see that this may not be a complete shortage of food. That means that if a man can buy with a day's wage three quarts of barley, I would say that there are forces in the world that are levying some type of rations. This famine is not just because God says, I'll not let it rain. These famines are caused by men that say we will conquer, we will bring war, and we will tell who can eat and who cannot eat. We'll be the ones that say, this group of people, you may have the wheat. These people may have the barley. How do they do that? Well, if you have the money, you can buy it. If you're just a common Joe, you're going to eat barley. Do not harm the wheat and the oil, I mean the oil and the wine, but who can afford it? Do you see how the rationing is here? That some will eat and some will not. Many times Christians are persecuted because they're not even allowed to do business. Many times a Christian will be persecuted because they are deprived of, what, uh, the, of, the, of the good things of life. Their properties are confiscated. They're not given opportunity to feed their families. And so it is a, it is a famine that is not caused by scarcity, but it is a famine that's caused by men 
who decide who will get what and who will not get what. So in verse number 7, let's read. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth creature saying, Come, and again the lamb opens the seal, and a horse comes. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. Now this time we have a name. Its name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority. Notice that they are given their boundaries. They're given authority over a fourth of the earth. Do not kill all the earth. You may kill a fourth of the earth. To kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and with wild beasts of the earth. So, with this we can see that these horses come together as a group. They come because the one who wants to conquer will also work with the one who has the authority to take peace from the earth. And those who take peace from the earth has the authority to have the means of production and the food that's there. They may create a famine wherever they wish. And then there comes death. There comes death. These horses are meant to be taken one right after the other. And that's why I've taken all four seals together. The four horsemen brings judgment of God upon the world. And it brings it in a very controlled way. Death, we have to remember, is something that Satan does not do. <coughs> Satan does not have the power of death. He does not kill people. If you'll remember in Egypt that the death angel came from the command of God. And he looked for the blood on the door. And if it was there, that man was not slain. But if it wasn't there, he was. And when death comes, it is not the devil that has the authority. In other words, if the devil kills, it's because God has granted him permission. And this is where the world has a real big problem. The world has a problem with God being God. But I want you to see who our God is. He is the one that is in control. Sin and death will, I mean, sin will bring death. And Satan can tempt people to sin. But he is not the judge. Death is a judgment upon sin. And that's in the hands of God alone. All of our lives are in, hand, and are in hands of our God, not the devil. We are not going to die because the devil has that power. If we die, it will be because of what God has ordained. We can trust that the day of our death will be precious in the eyes of our Lord because it is not outside of his purview. The devil is still under God's control. It says that Hades follows. It follows after death. That's the place where people are going to be reserved until they stand before God in judgment. So the writer's been given authority to kill with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, with the beasts of the earth. And many times after war, the beasts of the earth just run rampant. But when I read this, many times I can consider the times when Christians were actually fed to the animals in, for entertainment. So many times I remember that this is not only addressing common warfare or common things that happen, but many times directed directly at the people of God. Now I have two applications that I want to give you. And so um, they're simply going to be this. We need to get a big picture of what this is talking about in the apocalypse, about the four horsemen. We need to rise above the details that we cannot know and receive the truth that is right before us and easy to understand. 
Secondly, we need to learn some wisdom that we can get from Job. And the wisdom is this, very simply put, do not judge God foolishly. Do not judge God foolishly. These two things. So let's go to the first one. We can consider that these horsemen work at the beck and call of our God. They stand ready like the chariots. It says, let us go and, uh, you know, and, uh, and go throughout the earth. We want to do your will. And they are given authority and permission for wars and famines and death. Now, you may say, well, surely he's not doing this to his people. Surely he's not doing it to God's people. But I'll, I'll say this. In the history of this world, have Christians endured and died in war? Have they been victims of war? Have they suffered in war? Have they been even deprived of food? Have they been put to death? If you lived in a different part of the world and not the United States, if you lived in Iran, if you lived in Iraq, if you lived in Egypt, if you lived in other parts of the world where people, even in this century, oh my goodness, this century has been the worst century for Christians. They were pushed off cliffs in Korea. They're just buried in, in fields in, in Indonesia. And you may say that, does God bring this well for the Christian in persecution? It's just another average day. It's just another average day in the history of the persecuted Christian. We must understand and believe that there is God in control of these things. I heard, I heard an illustration given by Pastor Beaky, and it's an excellent illustration. He talked about a pastor that was in Turkey, and he said, I'll be praying for your people in Turkey. And this pastor told him, oh, we'll be praying for you, because in Turkey, we know who the enemy is. But in the United States, Christians are duped. They don't even know that they're being led down the path of, of, of deception. We know who the enemy is in Turkey. They come after us and kill our families and burn our homes. In the United States, they actually preach uh, heresies because they're so, they're so deceptive. So with this, I want to encourage you to follow me in learning the apocalypse, but we need to keep our eyesights to the big picture. I want us to get the big picture of what's happening here. So let's make the most obvious truths that we can learn and own them. We need to own the truth that we can from the apocalypse because the promises are there. He that hears this book will be blessed. And so let's take the big picture and own them. God is providing obvious truths to us so that we can overcome and conquer, so that we can endure unto the end. We need to be forewarned so that we can be forearmed. We need to understand what's ahead of us so that we can endure unto the very end. And what are these high-level truths? Well, there are going to be some very horrific things that will happen, that have happened, and that are happening now. Very horrific things. War. Now, these horrific things may come from the hands of evil men. They may come from the plans of Satan. But they will be judged by God. God is ruling as a sovereign king over all of creation. And he has his chariots and his horses, and they do his will. They do his will, and they're anxious to do his will. They want to do his will. And when these things are done, they bring rest to the Spirit of God. Because his will is being done. It's one more day closer to the day of judgment, to the time when Christ comes back. Now let me tell you about this day. 
No man and no devil and no creature can prevent that day from coming. It'll not get here one day late, but it will not get here one day sooner. It'll get here exactly the way it's supposed to come. God is in control of this. God is sovereign. He is on his throne. Do not be afraid of those thunderclouds that are going to break over your head. God has, I'll, I'll put it in a very, very trite, trite way, God has his silver lining for us. So, there may be war, there may be famine, there be death, but we cannot be separated from the love of Christ. Doesn't that sound like what the epistles say? Mm -hmm. All these things that are in the epistles are nothing more than what's in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. They cannot separate us from the love of Christ. So let's remember and be warned. Now my second application is this. It is a valuable lesson that we can learn from Job. We must not judge God for being God. From the time that man had declared his independence from God in the Garden of Eden, he has literally declared war on God. And from that time to this time, sinners had tried to negotiate their own peace with God. But that negotiation is on the sinner's terms. The sinner wants to say, I will be unbiased. I'll not judge you unharshly, but let's get down and we'll talk face to face. You know, a little bit of a compromise, a little bit of give and take. That's the way man has approached this. This reminded me of, a doc, of an essay I read by C.S. Lewis, and so I, um, I looked it up on the internet. I have the, I, have the, I have the book, but it's easier just to download the PDF. And I read once again a small essay called God in the Dock, and I've mentioned it before. Remember, the dock, he's an English guy, and so the dock is a witness stand in a courtroom. And when I read this, I said, this is exactly what we're dealing with right here. It also reminded me of a, of a silly story that was told to me by a friend. And so um, let me tell you this silly story, and then I'll tell you the, the quote from C.S. Lewis. Lewis. Uh, this story goes a little bit like this. There was once a faith healer who stood upon his platform and he invited people to come and, and to be healed. One man came down and, and the faith healer looked at him and said, well, what is your problem and why are you here? And the person said, well, I'm, I'm here because of my hearing. And so the faith healer puts his hand upon the man and puts his hand upon his ears and he shouts some things and he says some things. And then he asks the man again, well, how is your hearing now? And the man says, well, I don't know, my hearing isn't until next Tuesday. But I want you to understand this, that the idea of man going to a hearing, he approaches God and says, I'll give you a hearing. Man gives God a hearing. He comes to church and he'll hear what God has to say and sit in judgment of what God's about to do. Do you see the difference now? Let me read to you a quote from C.S. Lewis, and this is the point he wanted to make. He said this, the ancient man, he's talking about men back in the days of, of, of Greece with Zeus and Apollo and uh, of, of the Roman and Egyptian gods. He says, the ancient man approaches God as an accused person approaches a judge. That's what the ancient man used to do. He would approach God the way you know, the way a man would approach a judge. For modern man, he's talking about today, 
the roles are reversed. He is the judge, the man. The man is the judge. And God is in the dock, which means he's in the witness stand. He, now, now he's talking about he is a kindly judge. He's talking about the man. The man being the judge is a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, well, he is ready to listen to him. The man is ready to listen for his reasons for allowing the war and so on. The trial may even end in God's acquittal if God is able to convince him of his good reasons. But the important thing is, is that the man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Do you see the difference now? We should not hear the apocalypse and hear about the four horsemen and say, what are you doing? No, we need to see the bigger picture. God sends forth his mighty chariots, his horses that strike fear into the hearts of men. And his will is done. His will is done exactly the way it's supposed to happen. And we should take heart in that. We should take pleasure in that. We should say, my soul is not going to be dying forever. Because the next seal, do you know what the next seal is? Is the souls of men crying under the altar. How long? Christians are going to be sacrificed for God's glory. May we live our lives for his glory. But if we die for his glory, may we all bless his name. May we all bless his name. We need to remember what Job was like. When Job was, was uh, when God gave Satan permitted to, Jake, to take Job's property, his wealth, even his family. And what, did, what was said of Job? It was said this. In all this, Job sent not, nor charged God foolishly. Oh, may we be like Job. May we see the apocalypse coming, the four horsemen coming. And may we not charge God foolishly, but say, Is not God mighty? Is not God's horses mighty? Are his chariots not going forth to do his will? And it puts his heart at rest. And may we not rest in that? That God is our God, that he is the one. And so this, I say to you now, listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches. He that overcomes and endures unto the end. To every church he said that. He's saying that to us now as he walks among us. He, the one who listens to what the Spirit is saying, he will be received by his Lord. And his Lord one day will say, come into the joy of your Lord. Christ himself will wipe away our tears. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying in his holy word to his people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Holy Father, it is with, with hearts full of awe and amazement that we see your hand throughout all this world, your mighty works, your great chariots, your fearsome horses doing your will. And we know, Lord, that not a single hair falls from our head without permission from you, that we might learn to live our lives saying, He is my Master and He is our Lord. May we have opportunity to serve you with our lives and even with our deaths. Give us grace, Lord, that we might take every opportunity to live for your glory, that we might choose what is good and run from the evil. Give us grace, Lord, that even the, the, the horrific things that will come from evil men that you have accomplished great good from it. May we see the mighty power of how it is beyond wisdom. It is beyond, it is something that brings awe to our heart. 
It is, it is a wonder to behold. It is marvelous in our eyes how you have worked these things. And so we love you, Lord. We thank you. May your spirit be with your people that we might embrace the truth, that we might have stability in our hearts and lives, that we may have a calmness. Please give your people the patience of the saints. Please give your people the strength of your strength. And that strength is this, to know that you are on the throne, to understand that, that we may, it may seem like we're at uh, uh, the, the mercy of the wicked, but we know that we are at your mercy, which is a wonderful place to be. So, Father, be with your people once again. May the gospel be preached to the ungodly. May sinners be saved by your grace. May this church honor and worship you as is pleasing in your sight. We pray this in our Lord's name. Amen. Amen.